You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Westside Church. Welcome back to another gathering together today. Uh, just go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to complete our series on the Advent season or the Christmas season, and we're going to do it with this sermon titled Embodiment. And uh, by the way, my name is Ben Fleming. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the Generations Pastor here, and uh, excited that you're gathering wherever you're at. Maybe you're by yourself, you're listening to it on a podcast, uh, or you are gathering in home churches today. We're excited to have you. Uh, let's start with this, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home, and he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, and he, to whom he was engaged and who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Again, we're going to talk about embodiment. Excited that you're here to finish up the year 2020. This is the day, you guys, as we as a church get to say all kinds of things that we want in order to say goodbye to 2020. Just kidding. Let's jump into it. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you're here with us no matter where we're at. Your presence is uh, just among us, Lord Jesus. And that means everything to us in the time of uh, uncertainty or whatever we're dealing with right now. Your presence changes everything. So Lord, I pray that we would be aware of that fact right now, wherever we're at, Jesus. We submit ourselves to you in your great name, we pray. Amen. I want to ask you this question to start things off. How do you deal with a mess? Whenever I think of messes, I think back to my college days and especially the time when I lived in a pretty decent sized house near downtown Klamath Falls and I had three roommates. So there's four of us in the house, including myself. And it's in and of itself like a social study where you can see how different people deal with crisis, how they deal with relationships, the television shows that they watch, how they exist in a, inside of a kitchen and how they deal with messes. And there's a few different types of people. One is just purely the mess maker. They're not necessarily an agent of chaos, but everywhere they go, they're a little like pig pen from peanuts where everything just kind of seems to fall apart around them or there's this little dust cloud around them. And usually this person isn't just a mess maker, but they're also kind of the crisis mess cleaner. They will clean. It's just about once every three months and only when an important person is coming over to the house. And then they're motivated, they're up for it, they're spick and span, all those things. Uh, and then there are people who are ultra clean where they will almost follow around the pig pen type person, trying their best to keep up with them until they finally break down and they just end up screaming at all the roommates anyway. And then there's the person that's kind of in the middle, and I think most people are probably like this, in that if it's not their mess, they just kind of avoid it. Or maybe even sometimes if it is their mess, they'll kind of avoid it. I spent a lot of time doing this, and while I was a pretty decent mess maker myself, you can ask my wife, I'm still a pretty decent mess maker myself. 
I have the tendency to just kind of mindlessly avoid messes. I'm really good at stepping over them and around them and going through them and ignoring them and leaving them in one part of the house so that I can deal with them later. My wife and I, with our two kids, live in a split-level home. So there's about just as much real estate on top as there is on the downstairs floor. And what I've noticed that I can do is, number one, I've, I've learned how to avoid my kids really, really well when I just want to be by myself. So I'll go downstairs and wait till everyone to understand that dad's downstairs. Then they come down and then I'll just kind of quietly make my way up to, to make a sandwich for the next two hours and hide myself somewhere upstairs. And then they'll find me up there and then I can go back the other way. The same could be said for messes. If there's a mess downstairs, it's pretty easy to close the door in the hallway and just go upstairs and hang out in the clean space. And because I have this tendency to avoid the mess, you can usually find my wife wherever the mess is. So I'm in the opposite space and my wife is, is where the mess is because she wants to clean up and stay up with that mess. Now, I do clean up sometimes. My wife would probably disagree with me, but she's not here holding this microphone right now. So I'm gonna be indulgent for myself. But that's one of the most incredible things about my wife is that she is so much more mature and beyond me in that she will willingly walk into the messes that exist in our home and be the agent of change that helps clean them up while I do the opposite. And what I've noticed about humanity and even the church and especially kind of what we've witnessed among ourselves and in our own hearts and souls during this crazy time is that we're either creating a lot of messes right now or we're simply just wanting to avoid them. I don't want to talk about this specific subject with family members or coworkers. I just want to walk around it or we're the kind of person that continually wants to stir things up so that we can feel some kind of superiority for our own lives and our own thoughts. But here's the cool thing about what Jesus did. He comes into this incredibly messy world and by the way, walks through an incredibly messy process. He doesn't just avoid it. He doesn't just go past it or look over it or annihilate it. Instead, Jesus is embodied in the middle of an incredible crisis at the end of a uh, of 400 years of silence for the Jewish people where Malachi was the last prophet that, that was spoken to by God and now John the Baptist shows up in the middle of silence and in the middle of a family dynamic with a virgin mother who is not yet married. He walks into this mess. And even more so than that, in his embodiment, God makes the decision to be born the way that you and I are, which by the way, is an absolutely crazy concept to me. Some of you have been around for the birth of a child. Some of you have born a child and then been around for the birth of a child. Now I've been around for two. We have two kids um, and that was enough for me. And I had the easiest job of them all. But the first time uh, my wife had to get induced and then there was 24 hours of labor before our son was finally born. And by the end of the process, they were wondering if she was gonna have to get a C-section. They're bringing in different equipment and there's nurses, there's doctors, there's chaos, there's all kinds of noise and things. And then the second time my wife was being so tough, she just kind of labored all day long. And we had no idea that she was doing so before I know it, we're in the target section in the freezer section and she's just kind of leaning on everything. And I'm going, okay, are you all right? And she's going, yeah, it's, I'm fine. And we get to the hospital and she's rusting and it's 45 minutes of just, the room is full, the volume is loud. It's just going until finally the baby is born. And then as Scott Erickson puts it in his book, Honest Advent, it's not just about the baby finally being born. And Luke kind of edits some of this stuff out, right? The baby is born, is wrapped in cloths, he's laid in a manger. 
And then the story progresses. But Jesus is willing to get into the mess of ambiotic fluid. He's willing to get into the mess of the birthing process. He's willing to get into the mess of humanity. And so I wonder today if some of us have been spending so much time trying to avoid the messiness of our world or our own lives that we neglect the fact that Jesus came and intentionally walked into the mess in order for his glory to be made known and shown in this world. Maybe the church sometimes will spend so much time trying to avoid the messes that exist around our building and in our communities that we forget that God intentionally walked into them. Maybe you've been trying to avoid and ignore and forget about your past when the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus can come into those things and not just step over or step past them, but he can change the dynamic in the middle of them so that we can have a greater understanding of who he is and we can actually experience healing. Maybe the word for 2021 is not just, oh my gosh, thank God 2020 is over and we can forget about it and hopefully move on as quickly as possible because there will be more elections. There will be more crises. There will be more poor family dynamics. There will be more tension in your workplace that is to come. But maybe if we switch our mindset from, man, if I could just walk over this or get through this and instead say, where is God in this? that can be the key to our success moving forward. And so Jesus takes the time to be born as a human is born. And even more than that, he takes 30 years before he starts any time of formal ministry, which I feel like I talk about this every year, but is one of the most mind-blowing things about God to me. You are God, you're, you're a superhero. You could fly, you could change the world and you could do all these things in these incredibly dynamic ways. But instead you come in the form of an infant and you make the decision to be born the way that you are and you make the decision to rest the way that you do. Have you ever had a child sleep on your chest, a newborn, a four week old, a five week old? I gotta tell you that there is nothing more that just makes you wanna melt into the seat or into the couch that you're sitting on in that moment. And God said, I'm gonna come and save the world and in the process, I'm going to rest with the people that help bring me into it. Maybe sometimes in our own lives, we're so interested in saving the world as quickly and as loudly as possible, we forget that the great thing about the embodiment of Jesus is not just that he came, but he decided to be with us. God with us, not God against us, not God sick of us, not God mad at us, but instead God with us. Which leads me to believe that if we are to understand the embodiment of Christ the way that we do in the story of Jesus, in the story of Christmas, that maybe God with us leads us to the conclusion that being present in our daily lives could actually be the thing that creates the most healing and creates the most change in the world around us. And so I want to talk just for a few minutes about being present, about being active and thoughtful and intentional about where you live and where you work right now. And the reason this is important is because I believe that God shows us his mind in John chapter one, verse one. Now, John, the disciple John, takes a little bit of a different approach to the beginning of the story of Jesus. He uses some poetry instead of just the facts about where and when he was born. And he says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness 
and the darkness can never extinguish it. A lot of Bible scholars describe the very first verse of that, that in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God is the, the most telling thing about that scripture is that the author, John, is trying to get at this idea of, hey, I know all of us have really wondered what the mind of God is. And now the manifestation, the embodiment of Jesus into our world is an actual explanation of the mind of God with human skin on. And so the fact that he wants to be present with us, that he wants to be embodied with us, that God with us, that leads us to understand that if we can pay attention to what happens immediately around us as Jesus did, then we can have a greater understanding of the mind of God. So I'm gonna give you a few ways to be present in your life in the year 2021, okay? Uh, and this is the first way. Way number one, be challenged. Be challenged. Maybe some of us have been walking through this last year and maybe we've created a little bit more chaos than we've been able to heal or repair because we've allowed ourselves to stop being challenged and instead we've gotten so comfortable that we're willing to pay attention to things that actually don't matter in the long term. So I, when I was preparing for this message, I started to think, man, what are the places in my life that I'm most present, that I'm not tempted to just kind of mindlessly grab my phone and stick it in front of my face and open it up and then close it again? What are some of those places? And one of the first places that came to mind uh, was wherever I'm exercising with difficulty. Just like a lot of people with the gyms closing and everything, I decided to start running. And I, I know I look like a runner, um, but I, I'm not. I hate running. And what I noticed about running is that my mind, when I am running, I cannot clip into that area where so many of you real runners can. I can't get my mind into that spot where my mind can begin to wander. I can begin to think about things or God forbid, some of you get that runner's high where all of a sudden you become a philosopher when you're along the trail of the street or wherever you're running. All I can think about when I'm running is the fact that I'm running and how much my body hurts and how much I wanna be done and how much more I have in front of me. All I can think about is literally the next step that is in front of me because I just can't wait to be done. I wonder if we position ourselves and we challenge ourselves in our life and maybe in our places of work or maybe our relationships, if we challenge ourselves physically, maybe we'll, be, we'll allow ourselves to be more present in every single moment that we find ourselves in because we're thinking about that next step, that next thing, that next goal, that finish line, Maybe because we've been so distracted and we've allowed ourselves to do things in an easy and unnecessary way, we've allowed ourselves to be distracted from the real challenge that can lay ahead of us. And that is to love God and to love people and to do so passionately. The next thing that you can do that will help you stay present in your relationships and in your life is that you can be curious. I stole this one from Pastor Boaster and Brady. Uh, she brought this up in one of our teaching team meetings. And it was a fascinating idea to me that in places and in rooms and in conversations where we are curious, we are always locked in. I wonder if we can't find ways to be curious about our spouses again. I wonder if we can't find ways to be curious about our friends again. And maybe in places where we feel like things have become so old hat, they become second nature to us. And while that can be good and comfortable relationships are important and nice, 
Maybe we can allow ourselves to be curious and ask questions that we've never asked before in order to learn more about our environment. Now, that doesn't just include people that we already have relationships. Maybe we should be curious about demographics and groups of people that exist all over this nation, all over this world that we've never engaged in conversations with. But because we already have an idea of what we think they think and what we believe they believe and what we think that they've experienced, we can all of a sudden kind of cast these aspersions on different groups of people that aren't necessarily true. But if we're curious, then our curiosity will create questions. And then our, our questions will create healthy conversation. And then healthy conversation will create relationships and friendships and that can actually move the church and the kingdom of God and the ball forward here in our nation and in our cities. Ask questions of people that you're making assumptions about that exist on the other side of the political and party line. Ask questions to people in the city that are decision makers and that need your expression and they need your thoughts and they need your encouragement. Maybe if we ask questions and we get curious again about the process of our world and how our God works, then all of a sudden our engagement will lock back in and we'll find ourselves creating healthy relationships instead of unhealthy arguments. It's not good enough to just make a statement. It's not good enough to just make a point. Instead, the church is called because this is how Jesus did it, right? He didn't just make a statement anymore through a prophet. He didn't just continue to orate from the heavens, but instead he comes and puts skin on and he stays with us to make a difference. Don't just make a point, make a difference. And that process can start by being curious. And then finally this, let's be thankful. I've noticed that in rooms and in conversations and relationships, when I am thankful, I'll remain engaged and present in that space. This happens to me when um, I watch anything by Pixar. Because I end up crying at the end of 90% of those movies now. Uh, Toy Story 3, it's a special kind of voodoo on me. And when Andy gives it, no spoilers, but when Andy does the thing at the end with the other, and I just cry and cry. There's something about being about Andy's age when the first one came out and then being like a 25 year old guy when the last one came out and this, there, there's a special kind of emotional attachment inside out. I could go on and on and on. But what I find, especially as I've gotten older and I've, I, I've developed so many friendships and uh, life has kind of shifted, moved and changed and I moved from this city and this house and this thing and I've become a little bit more nostalgic about stuff. When I get to the end of some of these movies and they tap into these emotions, I feel myself being so incredibly thankful for the family and the people and the friends and the encouragement and the workplace that I do have. And sometimes it's only for those moments, right? Where we feel like our emotions have been engaged and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm just so thankful that I've got this and I've got that. And then it kind of goes away. But sometimes it'll stick with me for weeks and for months. I wonder if because God is calling us to be challenged and to be curious and to be present in these different spaces in our lives, if we can't continue to remain engaged for the long term when we are thankful. Not thankful when things are perfect. Not thankful when things always work out for us. Like I said, there's gonna be more strife. There's gonna be more elections. There's gonna be more difficulty. If you're wondering about the facts of that statement, just read the end of the book of the Bible and you will discover that it doesn't necessarily get easier from here. Instead, it can get more difficult. But if in the process we can be thankful, then we will constantly be looking for more things to be thankful for because an attitude of thankfulness is a multiplier. It's not a subtractor. 
And so when I'm thankful for this, I will find something over here to be thankful for. I'll find things to be thankful for inside of people and conversations that I disagree with because an attitude of thankfulness will look like Jesus. And so I'm gonna end with this. I'm gonna go to John chapter four and uh, it's not gonna be on the screen. So you're welcome to turn there if you want. And I'm gonna start in, in verse nine. A lot of you know this story. It's about the, the Samaritan woman that goes to the well and Jesus meets with her as the disciples walk off. And it says in verse nine, this woman was surprised to meet Jesus for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift of God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And she says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. She said, this well's deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman says, give me this water and then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. So in this story, Jesus addresses a woman who he probably shouldn't be talking to. At least that's what the woman herself says. Usually Jewish men wouldn't be hanging out around here for me to be out here. I'm an undesirable person and this is an undesirable time of day to be out at the well trying to get water. And Jesus engages this conversation with her and he says, look, when you drink from this spring, when you drink from this living water, you're never gonna be thirsty again. And of course she misunderstands because we all would misunderstand in this situation. But what he's trying to get at is he says, when you engage with me, that is all that you need. Now, I wonder in this time where we're looking for ways to divide ourselves even more. We're looking for more lines, right? Uh, we're constantly seeking out who is right and just in this situation, who identifies with how I think about things and, and with, with everything from COVID to politics to how we live our lives and how we raise our kids and how we do this and how we do that. We're constantly looking for different lines in our relationships to delineate ourselves from the people that we believe are right and the people that we believe are wrong. We're trying, whether we know it or not, to separate ourselves and draw different lines and put each other in specific boxes because that allows us to be safer. Now, if there was ever anybody that has ever walked this earth that really was different from anyone else, it's God, it's Jesus. God had an excuse to say, look, I'm better than all of you. I'm perfection. You guys are screwing all of this up. And instead of drawing the lines and creating more boxes and building more reasons to disagree with each other, what God does is he begins to blur those lines. And when he could have remained God and he could have just struck us dead with lightning or orated again from the heavens and the clouds, he puts skin on and he says, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna walk among you. And this engagement that you can have with me will create this life where you'll never thirst and search for this fulfillment from anywhere else again. I wonder if in 2020, where we're trying to draw lines, if we would engage in the Savior and with the Savior and with the salvation that he brings so that we would stop trying to divide ourselves and instead try to unite ourselves around the simple truth. That is that we will never be fulfilled by anything else in this life 
but our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, who was embodied in human form, born the way that you and I were, and saved us in a way that you and I can't. Jesus, we give you praise today. Lord, we're thankful that you, that you came and that you died for us, Jesus. And we embrace right now being present in our lives with where we're at right in this moment. Lord, in the rooms and the conversations that we're at, Lord, I'll just say directly, Lord, I pray that we would repent of just trying to be distracted by our technology all the time. Lord, that we would repent of trying to be distracted by our arguments and our disagreements all the time. There is discourse that must happen. There is progress that must be made. But Jesus, I pray that our efforts wouldn't simply be division, but that they would be to unite around the one wellspring, the one child, the one savior that came for us. Lord, we wanna embrace you in 2020, not our own way of thinking and our own decisions and our own directions. So we give everything that we have to you right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thank you for joining us. We really do thank you, Westside Church, um, for sticking together and being flexible and being innovative throughout this entire process. 2020 has been a crazy year, but here's the trick is I believe that we've learned so much and that because of what we've all experienced in this season, we're gonna be stronger than ever as we head into 2021. So let's continue to unify. Let's continue to love our city and love Jesus together. We love you so much. You're now free to roam about the cabin.